0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I started a short series this morning. Um, it's going to be four messages in the series. Uh, I did one this morning. I'm doing one tonight. Then, of course, next Sunday morning and evening, God willing, I'll do the the other two. They're all all different, Um, so I'm not repeating this morning's message to you guys this evening. Um, If the series, um, if you wanna follow the series, if it's your inclination to do so, the messages that you miss, if you come in the night, will be on the podcast. Um, The short series is actually called, I've called it, It Ain't Necessarily So. And I know that's not particularly good English. It wasn't intended to be good English. It's actually a line from an opera called Porgy and Bess. Now, I know many of you perhaps won't have heard that. It was written a long time ago. It was written in 1935 by George and Ira Gershwin. Became a very popular and very famous opera. And in the opera, there's a character. He's a drug uh, dealer. His name's Sport and Life. And uh, he sings a song in the midst of that um, opera in which he expresses some doubts about the statements and stories that are found in the Bible. And he says, um, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Now, what I'm hoping to do in this series is to look at some things that are widely believed in Christian circles, things that I think often amount to unchallenged truisms. They tend to be what we call urban myths. By an urban myth, I mean a story or an idea or a concept that gets passed around as fact Often accepted without question, they are passed on and they have a habit of taking on a life of their own, but the reality is when you look at them, they ain't necessarily so. Um, It wouldn't matter if these urban legends were really harmless misunderstandings, but in truth, they can amount to dangerous errors that can ultimately lead to heartache and disillusionment when people base their lives, or major decisions on them, and uh, and over the years, I've watched people actually forsake the faith, they've walked away from God, they've walked away from church, because of the disillusionment that these ideas actually created, they didn't deliver, and people thought God had broken his promises, when in actual fact, I'm not even sure that he made them. Now, some of these Legends these urban legends that we 'll look at they, they look like fool 's gold i 'm um, sure you 've heard of the you know fool's gold it looks initially like the real thing, but once tested proved to actually be inauthentic so what I did this morning is I talked about the concept of faith okay and i 'm um, not going to repeat the message you can get it on podcast um, this message I want to confront another urban myth that we tend to believe is true in church without questioning, and it's the myth that we are not allowed or not supposed or not called to judge. You've heard it said, judge not that ye be not judged, and so we have this idea that in Christian circles we should not judge other people. It comes from a passage in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 through 5, and I want to read it to you, and then kind of unpack it with you. Do not judge others, for you will, uh, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about the speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. I, I would say that that opening verse, Matthew 7, chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1, is probably the most frequently quoted Bible verse in our culture. Judge not that ye be not judged. It's probably the only verse, in fact, that our culture knows and approves of. For most of us, it has come to mean the idea that we should never say somebody's actions or choices or lifestyle is wrong. We must not judge anyone or anything. And without wanting to tread on too many toes, and I realize that this series is probably that potential, it probably has the potential to tread on some people's toes, but I'm asking if you would just hear me out. I want to just suggest to you, that ain't necessarily so. I think the idea of never passing judgment is an urban myth, widely believed, but quite wrong. Now you could say, well Don, if it's an urban myth as you say, how... How how is it possible that so many of us believe that Jesus actually meant what he said in Matthew chapter 7? That he doesn't want us to judge others. When you come to an idea like this, the first thing that you probably need to do in in coming to Matthew chapter 7, and and actually all passages uh, in the scripture is recognize that we come to it with a tendency to read ancient words through modern-day filters. And we read Matthew 7 through a filter that is very highly valued in our pluralistic modern-day culture, and it's the filter of tolerance. Now, obviously, I'm not suggesting to you that there's something wrong with tolerance. I'm not advocating intolerance as some kind of virtue. Tolerance, correctly understood, is an admirable, desirable trait and one that we should strive for. But the key word here, or the key phrase, is tolerance, correctly understood. The concept of tolerance has undergone an incredible change, a significant shift in meaning over relatively recent times. If you look at older dictionaries and look up the word tolerance, it will be defined in in this kind of manner. To accept the existence of different views, to recognize other people's rights, to have different beliefs or practices without an attempt to suppress them. You look at a modern-day dictionary in Kata, for example, and it will define tolerance as the acceptance of different views, the different views of others. When you compare the older and the newer definitions, there is a slight but very weighty change. For example, the older version says, to accept the existence of different views. The new one says, to accept different views. Leaving out the phrase, the existence of, amounts to a subtle but massive shift in meaning. To accept that different or opposing positions exist and deserve the right to exist is one thing, but to accept the position itself is quite another thing. In moving from the older definition to the newer definition, we've moved from allowing free expression of contrary opinions to the acceptance of those positions. From permitting the articulation of beliefs and claims with which we do not agree to asserting that all belief claims are actually equally valid. Claiming all beliefs are equally valid, even though at times they are clearly diametrically opposed, to me seems like an, an exercise rather in, in logical suicide. And I note that it is only in the moral, ethical, and spiritual realms that we accept such Alice in Wonderland stupidity. In every area of life where we can test outcomes... We know some ideas work and some don't. We know that some answers are correct and others are not. We, we know that some ideas are good and, frankly, some ideas are stupid. Ever had a stupid idea? Thank you. Two of us. Now, you, you imagine an engineering student arguing that his calculations didn't matter so long as they work and were true for him. I I suspect not too many of us would feel comfortable driving over a bridge that that student built. In the relatively recent past, a person might be regarded as tolerant if while holding very strong views about a subject, they also insisted that other people had the right to dissent from that view and argue their own cause. That view, by the way, is famously summarized by the Frenchman Voltaire when he said, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. But today, such a person is regarded as hateful. Today, we must accept the views of other people without judgment or critique. To criticize somebody else's views or moral choices is considered at best. A major faux pas, a sure sign of either arrogance and or ignorance. So in a culture where truth is considered relative, there are no absolute standards by which anything can be judged. Judge not that ye be not judged makes absolute perfect sense. In our culture, there isn't much of an appetite for the stories of Jesus and the teachings that he gave. But if there's one story that resonates with postmodernism, of course it's the story of Jesus and the woman taken in adultery that's found in John chapter eight. And people love that story. Jesus did not condemn the woman. In fact, he turned the tables on the judgmental Pharisees and sent them away with their self righteous tails between their legs. Don't judge. End of story. But I want to ask you something. Does the Bible really say that? I'm not talking about whether this is culturally accepted, acceptable, whether we are shaped by this culture's values. I'm talking biblically. Did Jesus really say that we should never judge anyone or anything? Is that what the Bible teaches? And as I said to you at the beginning, I think this well-worn idea that we shouldn't judge others is in fact an urban myth. It ain't necessarily so. Why? Well, firstly, I'd like to suggest to you that it's actually impossible to escape making moral judgments. If I say to somebody, you are being judgmental, then in fact I'm making a judgment about them. I'm judging them for being judgmental. And it seems that I've done wrong for suggesting that they are suggesting that somebody else has done wrong. And it seems a little, if not a lot, contradictory and self-defeating. Making judgments actually is inescapable. Secondly, the scriptures, and in this case, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, simply cannot be removed out of their context and consider it alone. They have to be considered in context in order to be understood. And also, what you then have to do is compare that with what else the scripture says. It's not enough to say it is written, you also have to be able to say, and again, it is written. What's the weight of scripture over the, over the broad scope? So when you read Matthew chapter 7, and I read to you chapter 7 verses 1 to 5, I deliberately stopped at verse 5 because verse 6 goes on to read this. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. This follows straight after the passage that I read to you about judge not that you be not judged. Question, how do you know this without making some kind of judgment as to who or what constitutes dogs and swines? Furthermore, that chapter goes on a little further on in verse 15 to 20. Jesus tells his disciples to carefully inspect the fruit of anyone claiming to speak or act for God. How on earth is that possible without making some judgment calls? So, just to blanket say, judge not that ye be not judged, does not seem to fit with the other things that Jesus says in this conversation. The context of Matthew chapter 7 calls into the into question the urban myth that we are never called to judge anything or anybody and actually when you look at the rest of the scripture it also casts a great deal of doubt on the supposed truism judge not take for example the story I told you about in John chapter 8 of the woman taken in adultery when you read it fully you notice that more often than not it's quoted very very selectively And people say, I stand in the tradition of Jesus, I do not judge. However, when you read the story, you will note that Jesus not only said, neither do I condemn you, he also said, go now and leave your life of sin. Clearly, he's making a judgment about this woman's behavior. Jesus, if Jesus was the tolerant, non-judgmental, postmodern that we like to portray him as, he would have said something like, well, personally, I am uncomfortable with your behavioral choices. But provided they work for you, and of course, that nobody else gets hurt, then I guess everybody to his own. I mean, who am I to judge? (laughs) Jesus didn't say anything like that. Now listen, he didn't condemn the woman, but he didn't condone her behavior either. There was this incredible balance in the way that he approached her. He offered forgiveness, but he did not offer some form of unsanctified tolerance. Since we're talking about Jesus, let's stay with his words and look at what he said in John chapter 7 verse 24, where he says, do not judge according to appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. Now here's the one who said, do not judge that you be not judged. Now saying, judge, but when you do it, judge Righteously, Well, come on, Jesus. It's one or the other. I mean, we either don't judge at all, according to Matthew 7, 1, or we judge as righteously as we can, according to John chapter 7. One of them's clearly not true. The New Living Testament or New Living Translation says, look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Here it seems that Jesus is actually exhorting us to judge, to discern, but to do it in a particular way. And there's a heap of other scriptures I could read to you. Let me read you a scattering of them. Hebrews chapter five, verse 14. It says, "Solid food belongs to those who are mature. for those who, through the practice, who through practice, have powers of discernment that are trained to distinguish good from evil." Here's somebody who actually is getting to grips with how you make judgments, and it's done by practice. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Never damp the fire of the Spirit and never despise what is spoken in the name of the Lord. By all means, use your judgment and hold on to whatever is really good. Steer clear of evil in any form. This is about judging the prophetic that happens in the midst of God's people. Paul is saying, you better, you better make sure you do that. He's not saying, judge not that you be not judged. He's saying, you need to judge. Hold to the things that are good. Put aside the things that you don't think. Stack up a little further into 1 Corinthians chapter 14 he's talking about the meetings and he says let two or three prophets speak let the others judge again Paul and Jesus are both saying this quality this ability to judge needs to be honed to be practiced but it needs to be done judgment not only involves the content of the messages but in fact extends to the messenger themselves 1 John chapter 4, John says, My dear friends, don't believe everything you hear. Carefully weigh and examine what people tell you. Not everyone who talks about God comes from God. There are a lot of lying preachers loose in the world. Jesus talked about check out their fruit. How do you do that unless you judge, unless you make some calls? So this whole idea of judge not that ye be not judged has to be balanced with these other things that Jesus, John, and Paul speak about. The necessity for being discerning. The necessity for looking at things and making some judgment calls. Making them righteously, as Jesus said, but making them nonetheless. Jesus, as I said before, was this incredible balance of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14, he was full of grace and truth. It does not read he was full of acceptance and tolerance. He was full of grace and truth. He was gracious and kind and forgiving, but at times he could be withering in his critique. You read Matthew chapter 23 and underline the number of times he says, whoa, you hypocrites. There's about eight, I think, at, at my count. He could be withering. This is hardly full of acceptance and tolerance. Now, I, I know the church has always struggled Over the centuries, we have struggled and sometimes failed miserably at trying to balance grace and truth. And we have tended to go to one pole or the other. The truth pole has tended to make us hard and harsh and loveless and legalistic. The grace pole has tended to make us liberal and compromising and worldly. We find it so hard to balance grace and truth. In in saying that we are called to make judgment calls, I'm most certainly wary that it doesn't encourage some people to rise up and become pit bulls for Jesus, attacking everything that doesn't fit with their preferences and their theories. Jesus did say, judge with righteous judgment. How do you do that? What does righteous judgment look like? And I'd just like to finish the message tonight by suggesting a few things that righteous judgment needs to include. And number one is the principle that we should judge other people in the way that we would want them to judge us. And I think that's the main thrust of Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. I think the key point in that teaching isn't an exhortation not to judge at all, but an exhortation to judge. Verse 2 says, the standard by which you judge others will be applied to you. Now, my question is, how would you like people to view your actions? Well, for me, I would, I would love it to be sympathetically. I would love for them to be able to take into account the factors that have motivated me in making the decisions that I've made, including my hurts and my wounds, recognizing that actually I meant the best, even though things may not have turned out as well as I had hoped. I think Jesus might be saying, in the process of making judgments, Judgments that need to be made. Be kind, be gentle, be sympathetic. Don't just write them off, but, but see their actions in the way that you would want them to have seen yours. Sympathetically, recognizing that sometimes there are hidden factors that motivate people to do things that perhaps you wouldn't do, but, but it's that ability to put yourself in their shoes. And, and, uh, and walk through the judgments that need to be made. You know, cut people some slack. Give them, wherever it's possible, the benefit of the doubt. The second thing I would say, and it's also found in Matthew chapter 7, is deal with your own stuff first and foremost. Matthew 7, Jesus didn't say, ignore the speck in your brother's eye. He said, deal with the log in your own eye first, and then you will be able to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. So we come incredibly humbly to this position of knowing that we are broken and that the first and foremost uh, priority is allowing God to deal with my brokenness before I'm on the hunt for other people's brokenness. You know, Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says that judgment is never ever carried out from a place of superiority. In fact, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Undergirding that is a sense that you have made a judgment call. But how that judgment call is worked out then becomes crucial. The attitude, the gentleness, the humility... That's crucial. The third thing I'd say in terms of how this thing about judgment gets worked out is um, I wouldn't do any kind of judgment uh, a call where, where I don't think God has spoken clearly. Uh, people often make harsh judgment in areas and about things that the Bible actually isn't itself clear about. So we speak loudly and forcefully on subjects that the Bible really has allowed a degree of latitude in terms of interpretation. When we do that, invariably, we end up harsh and pharisaical. You know, the Pharisees took the clear statements of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments, and then surrounded them with rules and fences that I'm sure were sincerely motivated in the beginning. It was the idea of... If we, if we surround these things with fences, they won't actually get to break them. But in the end, it's the surrounding fences and rules that become the issue. The, the Ten Commandments were developed by the Pharisees into 613 rules. So it's no longer 10, we're now dealing with 613. The original intent of these additions was to clarify the law, but what they do is uh, end up adding layers of complicated regulations. Not only did they have the 613 commands of the Mosaic law, but they added literally thousands of new commandments that were introduced to clarify the 613 commandments that were designed to clarify the 10 commandments. It sounds like the spider that ate the fly, you know, that song. And it goes on and on and on. And people got really, really strict about the 613 commandments and the thousands that clarified the 613. For example, in the Mosaic law, one of the commandments was keep the Sabbath day holy, intended that people would be rejuvenated and rested. And and Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But by the time the Pharisees had finished with that, the Sabbath became a burden. They had 39 separate categories of what clarified work, how many steps you could walk, how many possible letters you could write. You weren't allowed to boil a jug because the steam could go up and, clear, uh, and clean the wall you know, of, of any dust or dirt that was up there, and that's work. And on and on and on it goes. And they were incredibly legalistic about these things. They had words to say about people who walked too far or who boiled the jug, or who did other things on Sabbath. And and it just, you you know, you laugh and you think that's ridiculous. Who who would do those sort of things? Well, just some of you haven't been in church long enough. (laughs) Because churches do those kinds of things. I was part of a church where we weren't allowed to wear denims, we weren't allowed to have facial hair. When I naively asked, is there something unspiritual about denim that I should know, I was basically told to sit down and shut up very, very quickly. Jeans were a sign of rebellion, I never knew that. So was facial hair, never dawned on me. But we got told fairly quickly, you don't dance. Really? Why? You don't drink. Oh, okay. Now I understand the Bible says you don't get drunk. That's clear, but from there, there are rules around the rules around the rules. I never did quite work out why you're allowed to square dunce, but not allowed to waltz. Somehow in there, there was a difference. Now, some of you are thinking, I never imagined church could be like this. Oh, we're good at this stuff. Listen, we always tend to think about the Pharisees as being the bad guys. You know, we're the good guys, the Pharisees are the bad guys. Let me tell you what you need to have to be a Pharisee. Number one, you need to be absolutely committed to a life of holiness. Number two, you have to believe in the supernatural because the the godless Sadducees didn't, but the Pharisees, they, they were fundamental. They believed in holiness. They believed in the supernatural. They believed the word of God was the word of God. Now, I suspect that some of you actually might qualify. I certainly do. I'm committed to a life of holiness, I believe in the supernatural, I believe the Bible is the word of God, and I qualify for being a Pharisee, and I, I don't know about you, but I've noted how easily I can swing into Pharisaical behavior, motivated by the best of intentions. Every Christmas time, I, I, every Christmas, uh, over the years of my ministry, I've watched people take a holiday from spiritual things over Christmas time. You know, you talk about taking your Bible on holiday and they look at you as if you're, you know, from outer space. Well, I'm on holiday, for God's sake. Why would I take my Bible on holiday? Well, it never occurred for me not to. T- never mind. And I've seen people over that Christmas period make stupid decisions that have affected the rest of their lives. As they not only left their Bible behind, but they left their morality behind and a whole lot of other things. And they made decisions that totally changed the course of their lives. And I pastorally have this incredible desire to get up on a soapbox and say, no drinking, no, and no, 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 all because I don't want that to happen. But I know over a period of time, these things become the rules. These things become the focus. And suddenly, you're being incredibly pharisaical and judgmental about things that actually God has not spoken about. Stay with the clear stuff, okay? Unfortunately, some of us think we are talking about clear stuff. Well, I'm sorry, some of you are not, some of us have not talked about clear stuff. There's latitude there. So be careful with things that perhaps aren't black and white. Okay. Number four. Okay, you still with me? You are still talking to me? (laughs) Number four, we aren't called to judge non-Christians by Christian standards. That puts the cart before the horse. I don't know if you've noticed this, but non-Christians tend to behave like non-Christians. And, and we aren't called to judge them. Let me read this passage to you. This is, this is the Bible, okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 11. Paul says, In my previous letter, I said, don't mix with the immoral. I didn't mean, of course, that you were to have no contact with all the immoral of this world, nor with any cheats or thieves or idolaters, for that would mean going out of the world altogether. But in this letter, I tell you not to associate with any professing Christian who is known to be an impure man, or a swindler, or an idolater, or a man with a foul tongue, a drunkard, or a thief. My instruction is don't even eat with such a man. I love J.B. Phillips. He says, don't even have lunch with him. Those outside the church, it is not my business to judge, but surely, it is your business to judge those who are inside the church. God alone can judge those who are outside. It is your plain duty to put away from yourselves that wicked person. Now, he's talking about someone in that congregation who is living in immorality, and a question has arisen about this particular person. And Paul is, in our, in our cultural terms, we would say, this guy's ruthless, where did judge not that you be not judge fit with this? He's saying, listen, don't judge the people outside. They, they behave like non-Christians. You expect that. But inside the fellowship, inside the family, come on, we're expecting something different. And the implication is very clear that we make some calls and we follow through with these. So the fifth point is within church family, there is a place for and a role of judgment. It's very clear. It's really hard to argue against this. Those outside the church, he says, it is not my business to judge. But surely, he says to this congregation, who are allowing this immoral situation to go on, he says, surely it is your business to judge those who are inside the church. Now, sometimes we call this process church discipline. And I'm aware that has unbelievably negative connotations for many people, and I understand why. I mean, horror stories of so-called church discipline abound. Often, it's not biblical discipline at all. It's simply abuse. However, I say with fear and trepidation, the answer to abuse is not disuse, but proper use. And William Barclay, commenting on this passage, says, The man within the church has special privileges, therefore also has special responsibilities. He is a man who has taken an oath to Christ and therefore can be called into question for how he keeps it. A lot of people in our culture are incredibly resistant to that kind of judgment or discipline. And the thought of it being done inside the church culture is abhorrent to lots of people. And I've, I've had people say to me, we are supposed to be a community of, of love. We're supposed to be known for our love. You, you have no right to step into a situation like this. It's not your business. Who do you think you are? Well, so many things could and probably should be said. I, I think we've allowed the world to shape so many of our ideas to the degree that we read a passage like this in 1 Corinthians and we think it's, it's, it's so foreign for us, it's so difficult to swallow God's word in these settings. Can I, can I ask you, where, where did we ever get the idea that love is about unqualified acceptance, that it never involves any kind of shaping or challenging? We love our kids so much that we shape them by discipline, by challenge. The book of Proverbs actually says that if we don't discipline our kids, we do not love them. I've had parents say to me, I love my children so much I just can't discipline them. I say to them as kindly as I can, you love yourself so much that you can't discipline your children. If you really love them, you would shape them. Now, I know I've got to be careful in this culture what I say in terms of what that discipline looks like. I'll leave that to you. you know, we have people protest. Well, I, I, you know, God loves me just as I am, and I don't need you to tell me how to be shaped up. Well, God does love you just as you are, but he loves you so much that he won't let you stay like that, and he sometimes uses other people to challenge you to move on. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, 7 to 11 message translation. Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? We respect our own parents for training us and not spoiling us, so why not embrace God's training so that we can truly live? While we were children, our parents did what seemed best to them, but God is doing what is best for us, training us to live God's holy best. At the time, discipline isn't much fun. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Later, of course, it pays off handsomely for it is the well-trained who finds themselves mature in their relationship with God. Listen, when discipline, when judgment is exercised in church life, when it's done with the purpose of redemption, it is never intended to be punitive. It is always done with restoration and redemption in mind. And I want to tell you, a healthy family has doses of it. There are times where there is a challenge, and we are shaped by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. I I understand how difficult that is for some of you to hear that. Perhaps because you have seen abusive situations where church leadership has stepped in and slapped people around. You know, they've done nothing up to a point and then suddenly it blows and they come down like a hammer on a blinking mosquito. And you just think, oh, if that's church discipline, if that's judgment, you know, I prefer judge not that ye be not judged. But I'm talking, that's abusive. That's not, that's not done out of, it's not done according to the scripture or with love. We are so given to individualism in our culture. It's all about me rather than about us, and we simply do not understand, let alone appreciate, the more corporate focus of other cultures or of the scriptures. We we, we just can't understand it. We can't understand, for example, while while. Why Achan can steal the, the Babylonian cloak and the gold from, from uh, Jericho and his whole family perishes in his act. We just, that seems to us so unfair. We are so individualistic that the scriptures just seem strange to us at times. An ancient Jewish document called the Midrash, and in it is a conversation, and one of the students asks a rabbi and says, He's grappling with this. Shall one man sin and God be wroth with the whole congregation? This is how the rabbi responded. This may be compared to a case of a man on a ship who takes a borer and begins boring beneath his own hammock. His fellow travelers say to him, what are you doing? Says he to them, what does that matter to you? Am I not boring under my own hammock? say they, because the water will come up and flood the ship for us all. They have an understanding of corporality that we do not have. We think, mind your own business, it's my life, I'll do what I like. We're all in the same boat. I think it's called fellowship. Sorry. (laughs) That's pathetic, I know. The church discipline that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians involves a case of sexual failure where a man is sleeping with his father's wife. Obviously, his stepmother, probably a much younger woman than his father and more akin to the age of her son. And Paul does not say to this congregation, judge not, that ye be not judged. He doesn't say, it's none of our business, it's a private matter, so long as no one is being hurt, we should just ignore it, just love them and and accept them. He's saying, listen, they're boring a hole in the ship, and, and a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. He changes the analogy, but, but he's saying, you will all be affected by this. Paul tells them in no uncertain terms that the sexual conduct of each member of the church family either adds or detracts from the ability of that family to gather around the Eucharistic table in sincerity and truth. He says it matters. And you should do something. And in the name of love, your tolerance is actually not love at all. Now, you need to step in and fix the situation. Do it kindly. Do it graciously. Do it hum- with humility. But, but do it. Shape the situation. And that involves making judgment calls. He says, your acceptance of this sin in the name of love has allowed a hole to be bored in the bottom of the ship. And it's filling with water. And you're all affected and you're all in danger. Another point I'd make is serious judgment and discipline of this nature is undertaken by mature leadership within the body of Christ. Now, within the church family, we all bear a collective responsibility for self-correction. We're on the lookout for one another, the people we love and care for. Hebrews twelve fifteen says, look after each other so that not one of you will fail to find God's blessings. That involves sometimes going to your friends and saying, Really? seriously? Listen, I love you too much to let you get away with that. What are you thinking? Now, we do that as friends, as people that are totally committed to one another. that's, That's not being judgmental. That's looking out for us, looking out for one another so that we We want their very best. And sometimes we see people, the people that we love, involved in incredibly self-destructive behavior, and it's our responsibility to say to them, as a beloved brother, hey, what are you thinking? What are you doing? I remember getting on a plane and flying down to the South Island to see a friend of mine who was beginning to involve himself in an affair. And, 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 and it was just, I could see what was happening. And I went down and I walked the beach for about seven hours with that guy. And we went backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards over this issue. And I'm saying, please don't do this. I could have just said, well, it's not my call to judge him. Listen, he's my friend. And, and I care for him enough to risk that friendship, to say, this is serious, what's happening here? So when you see someone that you have relationship with, I'm not talking about people you don't know, but when you have relationship with people, you see them involved in self-destructive behavior, you are not called to turn a blind eye and say, judge not that you be not judged. If they're non-Christian, keep your nose out of it. They behave like non-Christians. If they ask you, well and good. But you're not called to get up on some soapbox, but with your friends that are believers, yes you are. Love requires you to engage lovingly, with humility, with kindness, and to exhort and encourage to challenge. There will be times, however, when that task becomes too big for you. And honestly, it's the time to call in spiritual leadership. Shepherds step in. And as I say, this is never about punishment. It's always about redemption. It's always done with the aim of restoration and redemption in mind. And it's not about people who are struggling with patterns of sin. Listen, the church is a hospital for sinners, not some kind of museum for saints. Church discipline is not for people who are struggling with their former life, who want to be different but are battling. For those people, you go along, you stand beside them, you encourage them, you pray for them, you do whatever you can to help them. You don't stand over them and, I told you so. Church discipline is reserved for those who persist in destructive patterns of life without any sense of regret, without any remorse, without any repentance, and who blatantly, shamelessly encourage other people to do the same. I want to tell you, those people, they're going to get... Daniel Brown, who many of you know, brilliantly describes this differentiation between sinners and false prophets. He says sinners, and we're all in this boat fall, they, they're broken, they do dumb things, they want to do better but, but occasionally they just mess up. False prophets do wrong stand in that wrong and encourage other people to do that wrong. That's, that's hugely different. We have endless time for, for sinners. False prophets are confronted and if they don't change and turn they get shown the door. And, and uh, you know, I mean, I look such a nice guy and angelic and all that, but I've shown the door to a few people in this church over 25 years. I've gone to people and said, We've asked you not to do that. Well, I just feel, well, you just feel somewhere else because you're not doing that here. We had one gentleman who had a habit of going around giving prophetic words to young pretty girls. And after about the fourth young pretty girl, I thought there's a pattern here. And I went over to him and said, what's with the young pretty girls and prophetic words? Oh, I just give words to those people. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. And you hang around them for ages after talking to them. Don't do that here. Well, I, I, I do what the Spirit leads me to do. Not here, you don't. I'm sorry, but we won't let you do that. Well, he did it again a couple of weeks, so we ushered him off the property. He said, don't you come back. And if that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm a shepherd. We're shepherds. It's, this, is, this is like... I, I, you would not let somebody come into your house and hang around in your daughter's bedroom without you checking out what they were doing. Say, so, well, you know, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm looking after her interests. Well, go and look after somebody else's daughter's interest. I can look after my daughter's interest. I'm sorry, but that's what love is in a congregation, in a family. And this whole idea of judge not that you be not judged is not right. It's an urban myth, it ain't necessarily so. Now, that process has to be worked through kindly and wisely and well. And, and I have to say, sometimes I haven't always done that so good because I get angry when I see those things happening. You, you work through the process. Matthew 18 talks about the process. If you see somebody who's doing something wrong, you go to them personally. If they don't listen, you go with somebody else. If they don't listen, you introduce spiritual leadership into the situation. If they don't listen, Paul says you treat them like tax collectors and publicans. You treat them like non-Christian people. You don't even have lunch with them, Paul says. That's, that's so jarring and, and against the grain in our culture, which says you accept everybody and you accept everybody's ideas. And you've got to decide, friends, whether your life and ideas and thinking is going to be shaped by this world's culture or by the word of god i know that's unbelievably difficult it's frightening stuff it can be terribly abused i completely understand why people retreat to judge not that you be not judged but honestly in terms of a church family I believe ultimately it's A, unbiblical, and B, it's unhealthy. It's an urban myth. And we are called, as God's people, to be discerning, to be a loving community, to be a community that is both full of truth and grace. And what an incredible challenge that is. If you don't pray for your spiritual leaders, please start. Okay, please start. When Paul says, and there are other passages which say, Please pray for us as leaders. Pray for your leaders. You really need to do that for us because we face these kinds of situations in, on numerous occasions that you would know nothing about. And, and we don't broadcast it. We're not out to make you know uh, bad people out of... But, but there are numerous times over the course of a year when I'll go to somebody in our leadership team and say, hey, have you seen such and such and such and such? said, so, yeah, I noticed that person. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with the way that, and, and we will work out, oh yeah, funny that you should say that. I, I was thinking that, or I heard back that. And suddenly, you know, you've got this sort of thing coming together and, and you've got one of those incredibly unpleasant tasks where you've got to make A, some judgment calls, and then B, follow through on those. So please pray for us that we would do it well and wisely. Um, But that we would also have the courage to do it. Because um, the thought of not doing it is completely untenable in terms of a healthy family. So, judge not that you be not judged. It ain't necessarily so. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.